This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines, I'm Tom Switzer. I hope you're having a great summer. Well on the show today, more of our highlights from 2018. Rowan Kallick discusses Xi Jinping, China's strongest leader since Chairman Mao Zedong, and how he sees the rise of China and its strategic conflict with Washington. And later on I asked Doug Bandow, a former special assistant to Ronald Reagan, to what extent is Donald Trump really responsible for the end of the Pax Americana. Well, we're all too aware of the rise of China, aren't we? But how Beijing shakes the world, that surely depends on the country's communist leadership, most notably Xi Jinping, who's China's strongest leader since Mao Zedong. So what are the intentions of Xi? And to what extent is China a strategic foe of the US and its allies like Australia? Now, to help to get to the bottom of all this, it's my great pleasure to welcome one of our nation's most distinguished China watchers. Rowan Kallick is a former China correspondent for both Fairfax and news publications. He's also been a prominent commentator on the Asia-Pacific region for more than three decades. He's author, most recently, of Party Time, Who Runs China and How? That's by Black Ink Books. Rowan, welcome back to Between the Lines. Thanks very much, Tom. Great to be here. Now, when Xi became General Secretary in 2012... He was widely seen as a consensus advocate, much like his recent predecessors. He hasn't turned out like that. In fact, he's the most powerful leader since Mao. How do you account for that? No, you're right. We must all stick our hands up, I must say, China watchers. We got it wrong. She has destroyed, really, all individual rivals, rival families, power blocks and factions. This wasn't in his genes. His father was a well-known small-l liberal politician in China, sent to the countryside with his family during the Cultural Revolution by Mao and came back with Deng Xiaoping. Mother also, a well-known liberal politician. So people have felt he was in the tradition of the predecessors, sort of consensus guy. But he has grabbed everything he can and uh, become the centre of the state and wants everyone to watch him and he has his centralised and personalised power. And he's upended the conventional wisdoms, hasn't he? Because if you go back to the 80s and the 90s, the prevailing view in the West was that the more capitalist and prosperous mainland China would become, the more liberal and democratic the country would become. But if anything, China's become more authoritarian, especially in the Xi era. Uh, how do you account for that? This is, I think, one of the biggest problems that we face now is this false expectation that modernization equals westernization. I think people could even see that in Japan. Japan has modern buildings. It has modern technology. But are Japanese people Western? I think not. I think they're Japanese. And China in its own way, is not Western, never was going to be. It is becoming, has become uh, modern in a technological sense. But what we've seen is the party which seized power in 1949 has never given a chink, really, to any but you possibility argue, but, of an alternative thought. But and you could argue that Japan, like South Korea and Taiwan, were authoritarian regimes and they've embraced liberal democracy. What's so different about China? The party 
is the difference. And the party is consonant more with the uh, Chinese tradition of imperial rule, with the emperor being the father of the nation, and the members of the dynasties, Chinese people during the dynasties were called by the name. So you're a Qingren, a Qing person, or a Mingren, a Ming person, rather than a person of China even. And so it is now. You're a, Xi Jinping famously uh, went to Xinhua and told journalists in China, your surname is Party. And the party has become the core of Chinese life and power, and it's retained that and believes that if it gives up any area of autonomy, everything will slip away. And how they reviewed what happened in the Soviet Union in 1990 has strengthened their resolve to uh, keep hold and, in fact, tighten a grip through using the internet as a tool of control. Now, you mentioned the power of the party. Julie Bishop, our foreign minister, upset the sensibilities of the Communist Party when in Singapore March last year she gave a lecture and she warned Beijing would never reach its full potential unless it embraces democracy. Is that your view? There are people in China who have that view, but they are not able to express it publicly. There are Chinese people in the diaspora who have that view, and China is seeking to make sure that the people in the diaspora are also loyal in a sense of acknowledging the centrality of the party. Uh, my personal view is that China could embrace democracy and continue to be successful. What happened with Suharto in Indonesia is quite an interesting parallel. Many people, including Australian Indonesianists, thought that after Suharto, the deluge. Indonesia will fall apart. In fact, it has prospered more since then than it did before. I have no prediction that democracy is on the menu in China, and uh, I can't see when or how that might ever happen. Yeah, but from Beijing's perspective, fear of things getting completely out of hand and, and a return to the chaos and mass violence of the relatively recent past, which is talking the past century here, where you had the collapse of a traditional regime, warlordism, famine that killed millions, mass terror, invasion, all that. It's pretty clear for Beijing how China embraces democracy without any experience of multi-party democracy, loyal oppositions, peaceful transfers of power. It's easier said than done, surely. And actually, it's partly the reason why Xi Jinping is immensely popular within China, because the Chinese people suffered almost everyone listening to this program. If, if you are of Chinese ethnicity or if you know people, you will know someone who's suffered it was a terrible 20th century for Chinese people. So inevitably, people have turned into the family as the most, again, most important unit. And families are seeking mm. prosperity from stability. One of the reasons why they're prepared to give up areas of liberty in order for the prosperity, stability, control to continue. It's just that the degree of control is extraordinary and most people who've never lived in China will be very surprised by it, by the many facets, the ways in which the party insists on having the capacity to control every event and person, even if it doesn't actually choose 
to exercise that at any one time. This pervasiveness is something that marks it out as something very different from any other uh, form of governance in the world today. My guest is Rowan Callick. He's one of this country's leading China watchers. You're on Between the Lines with me, Tom Switzer. Rowan, you've been on a speaking tour across New Zealand and Australia. And you make the point that China's intellectual direction is clearly determined in this new era of Xi Jinping. And you say that many universities have recently opened Xi Jinping thought centres. Marxism is back on every course. I was struck by that. Marxism is back on every course. Xi, is he a communist or a nationalist? He is proudly both. And there is no doubt about that. If you want to find out about what he thinks, you can look at Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. This has been written into the national constitution as well as the party constitution. And this formed the basis of his over three hour speech. I was there listening to him making this speech at the Great Hall of the People last October at the five yearly party congress. And he spelled out the importance of socialism and communism. China led the way in the global celebrations of the Karl Marx's, Karl birthday. Marx's yeah, birthday, 200, years, 200 yeah. years. So speaking in the Great Hall of the People, she described Marx as the greatest thinker in human history and vowed that Marxism would always be the guiding theory of China and the Communist Party. So I've heard people here, this is why I, I wrote a book about the party, was I heard business people say from Australia say, oh, this is just window dressing, you know. But it, it's true. And uh, the commanding heights of the upstream of the economy remains in state hands. That will not change. National champions are emerging from the, the mergers of some of those companies. And the private sector, almost all private companies of any size, both domestically owned and foreign owned, have now have party branches. They're expected to, and increasingly those branches are expecting to take a strong part in strategic decisions of those companies. And the leaders of those companies have to tread this very difficult line between getting too close to the Chinese leadership, they get burned, too far away and they're in trouble too. So even the people who lead the three big online companies, the favourites at the moment, BAT, B-A-T, Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent, Jack Ma, Pony Ma, Robin Lee, those guys have done a great job. But it's constantly clear to them that they lead at the discretion of Xi. Intriguing. I mean, because until relatively recently, the broad consensus among Western China watchers was that communism has ceased to be a central legitimating idea for the country and the party leadership and that the communist leaders instead would strengthen their claims to be nationalists and that the communist party would likely remake itself as an anti-western nationalist party struggling against western encirclement. That's not the case. So there is a, a renewed confidence. With if, ideological underpinnings. With clear ideological underpinnings. Yeah. People have to study these documents. I suggest, if you're listening to this, if you're serious about engaging with China, you need to read that speech by Xi. And what's more, 
the new thing is there's a confidence that this may provide something of a model for other places, mm. you know, along the Beltham Road, mm. especially and Laos so on. and Cambodia, yes, the so-called countries that, are, yeah. that are, are looking for a new way. The Chinese way may be something that they can look to, and she talks about developing a shared interest for humankind, these kinds of phrases. That phrase was recently adopted by the UN Human Rights Council as a kind of template, sort of replacing the idea of universal human rights. Well, on that note, no question it's bulking up and uh, building many disputed islands in the South China Sea. The Hague ruling two years ago made it clear this was illegal, but China's ignoring those rulings. Let me run a quote by you. This is Robert Kagan, a leading neoconservative scholar uh, in Washington. Uh, this is what he told a Brookings Roundtable on China. This was in November. Quote, My attitude toward China is, do well economically, but you can't use your military to expand your power position in the region. Is that fair? No. Is there any justice to that? No. We Americans, this is Robert Kagan, we Americans get the Monroe Doctrine and you don't. That's just the way it is. I'm sorry, we are containing China and the Chinese believe we are containing them. Rowan Kallick. A friend of mine, Ju Feng, remarked to me that China is a lonely rising power. It's got 14 uh, neighbours on the land. And of those, only one is an ally, North Korea. Not really a friend, despite the two recent meetings between uh, Xi Jinping and uh, Kim Jong-un, who you can get a sense of China's attitude because many Chinese people call him Jin Sampang, Fatty Kim the Third. And uh, so that's, you know, so China does feel alone so it's seeking to influence those around through its economic power it wants to realize its ambitions through being economic everyone around being economically dependent on it and so all roads lead to beijing and so on now does this mean military militarily stepping out i don't see that happening there's some debate inevitably will china take over taiwan that's a separate issue i i don't think that that's going to happen militarily militarily um but certainly uh, is china using the people's liberation army as a way to uh spread its capacity overseas yes it's becoming more dependent on middle eastern oil and it wants to ensure access to uh, those routes so military base in djibouti so we saw uh, chinese flotilla uh, exercising with the russians in the baltic sea of all places mm. so we are seeing these things happening and we will continue to see it happening and insofar as america has been the guarantor of global trade uh, we in australia have been happy about that and china itself has benefited of course as a as an enga economically engaged power this is where it's different from the soviet union one of many ways different from the soviet union we're all engaged with china there can't be a cold war as there was before 1990 and so the uh, so china is seeking to protect its own trade but it's also 
seeking to have its domestic heft legitimated or uh, become uh, more authoritative by moving offshore, making sure the Chinese diaspora are sort of uh, vanguard of this. And I think that uh, it's, in, it's inevitable that the global guarantor of trade has concerns about whether China has the same attitude. Uh, China's just embarked on the Made in China 2025 policy, which looks like a kind of mercantilist approach mm. of uh, bringing onshore all high-tech. Will this disrupt the idea that we've had before in Asia of the fantastic integration of Asian economies, that great value chain, which has been good mm. for peace as well as good for the economies? Many questions still remain about, uh, here. And one of the problems is, in answering those questions, Xi Jinping himself takes all the decisions and people have very little access to his circle. Mm. He's centralised and personalised. So we get announcements, we have to take them seriously. That's all we have. Rowan, thank you so much for being on the programme. Thanks, Tom. Well, remember the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Empire? Ah, those were the days. Back then, the US was the sole remaining superpower. America was seemingly invincible. Charles Krauthammer, the distinguished neoconservative commentator who died recently, he put it well in a highly influential essay in Foreign Affairs magazine. According to Krauthammer, the US should, quote, lead a unipolar world unashamedly laying down the rules of world order and being prepared to enforce them. That was Krauthammer in 1990. However, in the years since the end of the Cold War, the US has fought seven wars. The Gulf, Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Iraq and Syria. And it's been at war for something like three out of four years during that period. Wars, by the way, that Donald Trump says he opposed. So, was the Pax Americana coming to an end well before Trump arrived on the political scene? And what does the end of American global leadership mean for our neighbourhood, the Asia-Pacific, and for Australia? Well, for answers, let's turn to Doug Barndow. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington. He was a special assistant to President Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Doug, welcome to ABC Radio. Happy to be on, Tom. Now, the conventional wisdom in Washington, and this is on left and right, it's one of those few issues that unites uh, politicians in Washington. They blame Trump for dismantling this Pax Americana or American global leadership since World War II. Is he really the culprit? Well, no, the American people are tired of it. I mean, what you have here is a system that's basically supported by a bipartisan elite, folks on both sides of the political spectrum. You know, you have an awful lot of people in Washington who spend their time thinking about crusades to spend, send other people on. You know, and the American people are pretty tired of that. They've been spending money, they've been losing lives, and it's not at all clear what the benefit is. I mean, you look today and you think, what does America get out of constant warfare, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Iraq, ad infinitum? And we should stress, obviously, having been a Reagan advisor and working for a libertarian think tank, you are cruelly putting it on the right. But until relatively recently, the arguments you made, they were found mainly on the ideological left, weren't they? Well, that's right. I mean, what you found with the end of the Cold War is finally some conservatives 
Well, Pat Buchanan would be one, for example, who said, wait a minute, we had a big government to fight the Soviets, why do we still have one when we've gotten rid of the Soviet Union? But an awful lot of people on the right seem to enjoy that position of extraordinary power and came up with new duties. Charles Krauthammer is one. A man, a very intelligent, fine writer, tragically, you know, we lost him recently. But still, you know, their view was now we have you know, the power to do something new. Let's take advantage of that opportunity. Frankly, that's a very unconservative way of looking at the world. Yeah. Well, leaving aside the Cato Institute and those on the left who questioned this Pax Americana, am I right in saying that even today the only really serious political figures who question this American global leadership are really Donald Trump and, say, Bernie Sanders? That's right. I mean, we had, they say, Ron Paul, who ran you know, for president, but a small figure. You had Dennis Kucinich on the Democratic side. You have some outliers, people there at the edges. But the central leadership on both Republicans and Democrats seems committed to maintaining this role, almost irrespective of cost. And as you say, the Americans are tired of the world and they're suffering from foreign policy fatigue. My guest is Doug Bandow. He's the, uh, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington. The subject, why Trump represents a threat to the American global leadership role that it's played, certainly since the end of the Cold War. Some will say since the end of World War II, and that's a good thing. Doug, let's turn to Asia. At the Singapore summit, Trump call for a halt to the U.S.-South Korean military exercises. Now, that met overwhelmingly hostile response in Washington, parts of Asia to be sure. Was Trump out of line? No, I think it made a lot of sense. If you want the North Koreans not to test nuclear weapons and not to test missiles, you really do have to give them something. And I find it extraordinary here in Washington, people who last year were running around saying, oh my goodness, we don't dare let North Korea be able to develop nukes and missiles, are suddenly saying it's more important to keep U.S. You know, troops active there, have exercises, than it is to stop the North Koreans. It shows, I think, a profound misjudgment of priorities where the most important issue for all of us is to try to prevent North Korea from being a nuclear power. We have to be prepared to make concessions. If we don't, why should the North Koreans make an agreement? But you, So your critics on left and right, Democrat, Republican, they'll say that those drills, those uh, military exercises, have been an integral part of South Korean security for years and a vital negotiating tool with the North Koreans. What has Trump gained from all that? Well, what Trump has gained is the fact that North Koreans no longer are threatening to turn your know, other cities into lakes of fire. They're not threatening to shoot missiles, you know, towards Guam, conceivably towards Australia. They're not threatening to kind of build nuclear, uh, you know, missile tipped missiles that can hit the United States. You know, you've seen a complete change in attitude. And in fact, I talked with a humanitarian uh, activist who came back from a recent trip to North Korea. They've gotten rid of all of the uh, anti-American propaganda. And, uh, I mean, I've been there before. I mean, it was all over. You know, you've seen a real change in attitude there. I'm still skeptical they'll give up their nuclear weapons, but they seem much more oriented now towards a peaceful approach and economic approach. That's an advantage. It's something that the West can work with and should encourage. You rarely hear this argument in the mainstream media. I mean, you think about it. What has Kim given up? He, at least he's halted the nuclear test. He's halted the missile tests. He's returned those U.S. Uh, hostages. And, of course, he's in the process of releasing the remains of those Americans who died in Korea. It, it, it is some, in other words, we keep hearing there's no concessions that Pyongyang are making. These are clearly concessions. 
That's right. And I think what's important to recognize is Kim, you know, has to, why would Kim want to give up his one, you know, kind of defense mechanism, given the United States' willingness to, you know, attack, invade, bomb other countries, including Libya, which in fact gave up its nuclear weapons and missiles. At the Singapore summit, what Kim did is said he wanted a relationship, a peace regime, and then denuclearization. I think that order was intentional, and it makes sense. Okay, but Trump also said at Singapore that the U.S. should not have any troops on the Korean Peninsula eventually. He intends at some point to remove them from the, uh, the peninsula entirely. But uh, that's the stated long-term goal of the Chinese government. I mean, your critics will say, we're just doing China's bidding. I'd say we're doing America's, you know, kind of duty. I mean, the problem here is there's no reason to assume that military commitment should exist forever, irrespective of changes in the region. South Korea now has something over 50 times the GDP of uh, North Korea. It has, you know, twice the population. I mean, the question is, why should the U.S. forever defend wealthy allies? I mean, Europe raises the same question that Trump has done that with NATO. I mean, NATO has something like 12 times the GDP of Russia, three times the population. Yet, when they're worried about Russia, they expect America to defend them. This is an overhang from 70 years ago. It doesn't make any sense today. Surely any U.S. retreat, and this is what your critics will say, Doug, they'll say that any U.S. retreat will send a signal that Beijing will be more assertive in the region. Now, to the extent this is true, won't a rising China represent a threat to the status quo in the region? Well, there's a difference between it representing a threat to the status quo than a threat to the United States, and I'm most important in avoiding a war with a nuclear-armed China. To my mind, the U.S. should be the backup power, the offshore balancer. Countries in the region need to be prepared to do more, and we see that. I mean, we see a kind of a debate that's growing in Japan. It's very important. We see uh, India taking on a, a larger role. We see countries like Vietnam which are looking for kind of Western support. We see the Philippines saying Japan should do more. We're seeing a transformation there that's driven by concern over China, a well-deserved concern. But again, this shouldn't just be America's job. This is one where countries in the region should be doing more themselves. And indeed, Tony Abbott, the former Prime Minister, he was recently at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, Doug, and he was a guest on this program uh, recently. And uh, he makes the point, and this is very rare for an Australian politician, but he's saying that the American legions are returning home, and as a result, this is what Abbott said, Australians need to resist adversaries in their own right. That would be your argument too. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the U.S. has a lot in common with countries like Australia. I mean, this is a relationship that goes back a long time. So there should be a cooperative relationship, but there shouldn't be a dependent relationship. And that's especially the case when it comes to South Korea, comes to Japan and other countries. So you know, kind of allied countries, democratic countries, countries that have a reason for being concerned about you know, uh, China need to be doing more. And I think we're seeing that. China's policy has actually pushed countries away from it and together. Uh, to me, that's all the good. Okay, well, listen, uh, finally, a trip down memory lane. 20 years ago this week, it was, I think, 1998, uh, I commissioned you to write an article for the Australian Financial Review <laughs> under the headline, US Alliance with Australia has passed its use-by date. This was in mid-1998, and you argue, Doug Barndale, quote, with the threat of war, the least serious in a half a century... Both countries, Washington, Canberra, should jettison their antiquated alliance created for a different era. Now, 
It's now been 70 years, Doug. Canberra and Washington are no closer to jettisoning that alliance. Why? Well, part of that is the status quo is very powerful. That uh, you know, I think folks who are in leadership positions, number one, don't like to make changes because they're afraid of the consequences. And second is, for the most part, you know, certainly in Washington, there's a desire to be involved everywhere. There's a desire to play a leadership role. You know, there's a desire to uh, you know, kind of impose America's will in different ways. And I think from Australia's standpoint, look, if I could rely upon a nuclear armed power to help defend me, why shouldn't I? That I can, I can understand that. And I think that's also, we see that in Tokyo, we see that in Seoul. But the problem, again, is these are related relationships that were created in a different age. Originally, we were looking at a revived Japan then. We weren't looking at you know, China. That we need to be thinking in terms of the future and how to keep the relationship current rather than you know, assuming it has to be preserved as it is. Doug, it's always great to have you on the program. Tom, thanks. I always enjoy it. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. Always great to have your company. Happy New Year from the RN team. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.